Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on Kicking Kicking and and Streaming! Okay, uh... Sorry, what? Yeah, let's do that again. I don't think I heard you. And maybe if you can... Well, I thought we agreed we were going to come in strong on this one. Yeah, strong is right. But, you know, bring it in from your diaphragm. Diaphragm. Lower your register and you don't need to bellow. Listen, but, but I don't know how you bellow, but where I come from, we really put our backs into it. Okay, all this and more on Kicking and Streaming. Chris? <sighs> Kicking and Streaming. Welcome, everybody, to our newest episode of Kicking and Streaming. I, of course, am your main host, Chris, and with me is my assistant host, Bo, always helping out, ever ever diligent. Always enduring the same joke. So, this is a very, very special episode of Kicking and Streaming. We have we have two very special guests with us today. Bo, would you like to uh, let them into the room? Yeah, yeah, I'll let them in. So we have with us today Erica and Cole with the Magic Lantern podcast, which is also a movie podcast, and we're very pleased to have them here on ours. Hello. Hello hey, there. guys. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. As with past episodes, we love to have our guests pick the film that we'll be starting off of. This time, you guys picked the fascinating 1963 French film Judex. I've here written a, a brief synopsis of the film. Bo and I have a little thing we're trying to do where... To keep things succinct, we try to summarize the film in 30 seconds or less. We say to keep it succinct. It's really to rein Chris in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) no, that's uh, apt. So I have written what I hope is a 30 second or less description of this film. It'll be a fun experiment because it can shine a light on how complicated or how simple a story is. And they're going to be timed. And so are you ready? I I am ready. Here, let uh, let me start the clock here. So, Judex is a tale of vengeance, adventure, and intrigue. It hits the ground running at breakneck breakneck speed with the villainous banker Favreau reading a threatening letter from a mysterious figure known only as Judex. He has been accused of greed and crimes against humanity, and he has roughly a day to make it right or face unspeakable consequences. After a brief period of inaction, including hiring a private detective and even some bonus cruelty, Favreau finds himself at the mercy of Judex, who puts in motion a plan that quickly spirals into chaos. Numerous interested and hostile parties converge on the fortune and unwitting daughter of Favreau, culminating in a hectic and climactic rooftop showdown. And there I am at about 45 seconds over, but I did stutter, which counts for at least 15 seconds. So, <laughs> yeah, you blew it. You totally blew it this time. All right. Well, it's a first time for everything. We got it in there. We did. That is, that is the story in a nutshell. It's interesting because I thought Judex, it does have a fairly simple story of a clandestine vigilante seeks revenge against a, you know, an evil corporate douche who deserves a comeuppance of sorts. It was interesting because for me, watching the first 
portion of the film, I think that that thread gets more or less tied up within the first 15 to 20 minutes of the movie, which I thought was the premise of the entire movie. So I was like, well, now what? <laughs> and then, of course, it just gets crazier and crazier from there as, as the story progresses. I was really blown away by how many twists and turns were in this movie. It was, I think there were new plot elements popping up and, and pivoting directions every, every couple minutes. It kept me on the edge of my seat, quite literally. It was a lot of fun. I like to think of it as the ultimate homage to the serial format. So every 20 minutes, every 15 minutes, you got to have something crazy going on. I Not even. It, I think it's more like every five minutes. <laughs> That's actually. true. That's true. <laughs> I, I almost felt this unheard voice of saying, but wait, there's more. Every every yes. every time some scene would happen. Meanwhile, it's... on the railroad tracks. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It did have that... Yeah, the I mean, clearly being well, I guess we should say that it's based on a serial from 1916 of the same name, a set of serial silent films. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that was surprising to me, I'll just say right off the bat, is that our what who seem the people who seem to be our arch hero and arch villain, if you will, the the two it really become sort of side characters pretty early in. I mean, I feel like Judex and. Uh, and Favre aren't aren't the people that we're concerned with for I mean we are they're on the periphery they're certainly influencing everybody's actions but they're not getting a lot of screen time or a lot of action in the story mhm mm the way things progress we're we're introduced to this character Favreau fairly early on. Well, actually, I guess first I should ask, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm putting the cart before the horse here. Well, I, I like to ask our guests this, but is there, was there anything in particular that made you guys want to suggest Judex as the film? Because I'm always curious to hear about, you know. Right. It's roughly out of 1,000 films in the Criterion Collection. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, we're big fans of that European take on the super criminals and heist stuff like the Dr. Mabuza series, especially the Testament of Dr. Mabuza. You've got the whole Fantomas nod mm -hmm. here happening mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Fifi, stuff like that. Belphegor, even, that we are just recently watching, that we've only just started, that feels similar to this and that it's episodic that way. And I wish I had been alive and in front of my television when Belphegor was happening in France. It seems like it was the twin peaks of its time. <laughs> you can't miss this show absolutely it reminds me so much of yeah. my kid adventure favorites everything come to life but with the benefit of having an app a complete expert at the helm so you've got georges franju and the transitions and the framing and the camera movement and the use of music is so light and free mm -hmm. it's just absolutely fantastic it's just so much fun from start to the cat burglar suit with the hip dagger to the slim fit <laughs> heist suit to the sexy circus i mean there's just something for everybody in this one <laughs> yeah it's fun it, it almost feels like it's this convergence of the genre both past and present all kind of emanating from this one singularity where they you know they pay so much respect to silent film era and a lot of a lot of the the traps and trimmings of of genre films in the past you know it's paying lots of respect to like you know the original Judex and Fantomas and these other ones and then and then you also see all these trace elements that have then been picked up and carried by other films and other stories so it seems like everything kind of past and future kind of points back to this moment with this film where as i was watching it i was thinking this kind of reminds me of the phantom because i went into the movie blind and sure enough i find out that the phantom was inspired almost completely by judex and of course batman was inspired by the phantom so judex is like the grandfather of of superheroes really and even with its you know period setting 
it is straight out of super cool hip 60s that wonderful mm. turning point of style that I think you can see here. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that I was struck by because I went back, you know, to what I hadn't seen the, I'd seen this film before, but it had been a while. And as I was rewatching, I went back to the original Judex from 1916 to, or 1914 or whichever it was. I think it was 1914. Anyway, mm. I went back and was watching through those, kind of looking for, what was being lifted from the style, how much of an homage it was, and you know, trappings from the from the plot and sort of the the episodic rhythm like we're talking about. But so much of the the verve and the style and the look is coming from, you know, it's it's pure like you're saying, that that chic 60s fantasy weirdness. Mm -hmm. I was also kind of surprised at the edge this movie had. It's I guess it's a blessing and a curse that I am still so unfamiliar with with both older and foreign films is that i get to be surprised every time i watch one nowadays <laughs> I, I i was i thought it was interesting when we're introduced to favreau at the start he you know he seems kind of just like a a mean ebenezer scrooge type and then he's confronted by the the elderly man who is accusing him of of screwing over his family leaving his, his wife and son destitute and you know they send him off and then the, the the next scene we have Favreau going for a little joyride in his car, leaving leaving the the area, and he spots the guy and is like, "Oh yeah," kind of goes full Toxic Avenger on him and just slams him with his car and <laughs> doubles over him and then drives off. I, I I was I was yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I was surprised at how I mean it's not it's not explicit, but it did feel very brutal. I don't think it just has to do with not having a great familiarity with this. I think anyone at any level, even us, we've seen hundreds of these films in this collection and it's still the extent of the violence was a surprise to me i i put that at the very top of my notes here then i realized it's george franju right and i shouldn't be surprised by this because i've seen eyes without a face and you know, the scenes from when they're butchering the animals <sighs> in that short <sighs> it should yeah. not shock me and still it does the way it's structured here i think it's really clever the way that he slides this in, like we said, every five, ten minutes in a way that even though we should be used to it, it still has that power to affect us. Because think about yeah. TV show Batman at that time. You might go in thinking that you're going into that sort of territory mm -hmm. of large and cartoonish, and you are not. And everybody is out for something. And it is brutal and dark. And the revenge is we can argue maybe justified and needed <laughs> and yeah. and it is executed and multiple people uh get taken off the board here yeah let, and while you're making me think of it chris let me ask you a question what you think about this yeah the stuff that it's paying homage to it practically demands a familiarity with early film history if you're going to grasp all of this mm -hmm. these escapes you said it was wrapped up in 20 minutes but then you has have these series of cliffhangers and underestimations of the characters that continue to go on and on. If you're not familiar with this style or this part of film history, does that seem silly to you to be happening over and over again? It, it actually did a little bit. I, I hadn't actually acclimated to this format, this styling until toward the end of the film when I more or less just ah, surrendered okay. myself to it. <laughs> it was funny because I had lots of notes. I think in the notes I took, I think roughly every five or six notes I wrote, what is going on? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait. So, and, yeah. 
<laughs> then I think your I think your forty five second synopsis maybe then does more of a service for people coming in. Maybe that gives them the sense of what you're in for. Yeah, yeah. That's that's one. That's probably if I could go back in time and tell past me one thing to expect, I would say. Go back, watch some some really old serials and some old film like the, the the films that are referenced and and paid homage by this film, and a lot of these seemingly crazy and random elements will will start to have a, a rhythm and a pattern to them, and it's easier to kind of get into the groove of it a bit. I I thought it was it, it was funny because as it got to the end, you know, it's only it's just shy of two hours. It did feel like a two hour version of a multi part serial. With the way that that new threats would enter the scene and new developments would happen, and I, as I was trying to summarize things, I have a, I had a note. So I'm I'm not the best at remembering names. I usually have to like double back and remember who who said what and which which character was named what. Uh, so this is just this is just a snippet of a note I took. Uh, Judex's assistant, the old bereft guy who was hit with the car, tells his son, Marie's boyfriend, where to find Favreau. They plan so loudly that Cocantine overhears it and tails them. Cocantine tells his little boy sidekick not to come, but the boy comes anyway, hiding under a blanket. Then it turns out they get caught by the people they're tailing. And it's just, I, as I'm trying to kind of summarize these events very, very quickly, because I, I tend, the way I watch my Criterion films, I, I end up streaming my phone to my TV and it's hard to pause. So I'm just trying to keep up as fast as I can. I write this chicken scratch doctor's notes trying to okay okay so hold on this guy's going here this guy's going here okay they just told him not to come but he comes over here wait a second that guy's that guy's dad holy cow okay da, 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 da. i'm just <laughs> trying to keep up with this breakneck pace it's i was really surprised at how fast the whole thing moved just from one crazy development to another it does it, but it, i mean once i got into the zone it's so fun it whips by and just like what you're talking about every single character and there are a whole lot of them Everybody has a backstory. Mm -hmm. So there's so much going on and so many diff different threads. Yeah. And Franju actually excised some of the original material yes. so he could condense this down. He cut out <laughs> storylines. He cut out characters. So this isn't That's... even the whole thing. That's and I right. Think, Chris, I did a similar thing. I have a list here that I could have used for my 30-second intro. It basically says, Hip Dagger, Messenger Pigeons, Secret Passageways, Trap Doors, Acrobats, Movie Traps, Chloroform. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. <laughs> And this movie has everything. And chloroform was it? Was it like this for you? Chloroform was one of those things like quicksand that when I was a kid, I thought I would run into as an adult a lot yeah. more often. Way yeah. more often than I ever have. Yeah. And having then said that, I think one of my very f favorite moments in the film is just that moment where we watch Cocotin watch the circus go by. Yes, it is such. Uh, yeah, it, it's great. And then even down to the horn elegy at the end, everything just seems to fit really well and follow its own muse, its own drummer. Yeah, yeah. It was it was funny because at that moment when the circus passes and he shouts out, Daisy, oh, Cocotin, hello. They... Daisy, Cocotin. Oh. Alt! They talk, and then I'm just like, hold on. I look back through my notes. I'm like, Daisy, Daisy, wait a second. Did I? <laughs> this, this seems like I should know her. And then, you know, she comes out, gets into her acrobat garb, and just starts climbing the building. I'm like, wait, why? She's okay. All right. She's, the, she's in it now. She's in the thick of it with them. It was at that moment that I realized that, okay, there's more going on here than I'm aware of. Because <laughs> there's there's multiple moments leading up to that, especially when uh, the elderly chap, I, I can't believe I forgot his name, the 
the the father of the boyfriend of Marie, when when he says that he, he's about to stab him, he says, "Wait a minute, that ring! <laughs> I used to have that ring. You're my father." Whoa! Je m'appelle Pierre Kerjean. Cette bague c'était la mienne. Je l'ai donnée à ma femme le jour de mon arrestation. Vous êtes mon père. These little moments where I'm thinking, okay, this feels like the, it just feels like the cliffhanger of an episode. And then at the same time, you have to acknowledge, okay, Marie was an employee in the house of Favreau, and then possibly they were going to get married, but maybe not. But then she's also the head of this criminal enterprise. <laughs> so yeah. it's... Yeah, there's a lot to balance. <laughs> it's true. It reminded me a lot of Tintin, including the breakneck pace that it moves at. I, I grew up reading Tintin, watching the cartoons, and I loved the, the, the film that Peter Jackson and Spielberg made. But that was probably the, that was probably the closest analog I had to, to help me acclimate to this movie, where you know, by the time development number eight happened, I was just like, okay, this is, this is basically a different flavor of Tintin. And that, that helped me to say, okay, it's about the adventure. It's about these crazy interweaving stories and how it all kind of comes together. Cole's list of, of words reminds me that, you know, that's the sort of list that you hear those words of these, you know, the hip daggers and chloroform and all this. And especially, I mean, I'm game for it now. But as a young boy, that would have been like, okay, like this is, I'm ready. Like, that's all I need. I see that list. <laughs> this is a story I want to, you know, I'm ready. <laughs> Where do I sign up? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to start going to crime scenes and figuring out who the detective is and then jump in the back of the truck and go <laughs> right. along for the ride. And that boy, too, it's I think it's it's fitting that to me, that boy seems to be the only one whose whose plans actually work out. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's the one who, which is probably a joy for any, you know, kids watching because everybody else, all of their plans, dastardly, nefarious plans, the hero's plans, everybody's plans just end in everybody being foiled. Yeah. You know, they, he figures out a way to get in and gets through all these obstacles, walks in, immediately someone knocks him on the head and he's out. You know, just <laughs> things like this again and again. Yeah. But the boy is really the one who's responsible for saving everybody and seems to be the, you know, one of the savviest characters. Yeah. And I love the way his comic relief actually works. Yes. So often a character like that is shoehorned into one of these and all of this stuff that's supposed to be funny is not funny. But this kid genuinely made me laugh. I enjoyed yeah. this performance so much. He was my favorite. On the topic of laughter, I wanted to ask a general question for everyone. How much of this was comical to you, was was funny? I think those moments of violence kept me grounded in terms of not thinking, not being too ironic with this. Because if I let that go too far, all of a sudden, Franju drops this thing and that reels me right back in and reminds me, these stakes are really high for these people. I think when I saw the the bird masks, how incredibly realistic and unsettling they are, I thought, okay, I I I need to pay attention here. And I think also like Cole was saying, I didn't really turn an ironic eye on it, but I'm a pretty easy mark. I generally go into things with the purest of motives and just sort of let it happen. So I I didn't have any of those moments of, oh, that was supposed to land, but it didn't land. I sort of felt caught up in the moments of high spirits and darker elements and just went along for all of it. Except for the reveal, I guess. Uh, the the big, the you know, one of the big ones, Judex is, is Valier, because I thought, well, oh, um, yeah. 
Surely, if he was supposed to be in this family for that long, and then it makes you really question the romance at the end, because <laughs> that was a weird position to be in. Anyway, I thought maybe that was a little bit... Uh, <laughs> but it, but again, it goes back to its roots, and those things were silly at that point, and yeah. that's okay. I chalk mm. that up more to what Franju actually says about himself as a storyteller. He is much more a technician and an excellent visual stylist. He claimed not to have the gift for storytelling, which I don't know that I agree with necessarily. But he primarily, because of that, focused on the visuals as opposed to maybe tying up these loose ends with the writing. Right. I was... I was curious at how people had reacted to it at the time, because to me, there's this, I mean, my journey of watching this film was I had seen it years ago, I think compelled by like, like many people might be now by the Criterion cover art, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, depicts the, the bird costume, which like Erica was saying is so very strange and surreal. And it's not what you would picture of somebody wearing a, a bird costume. It's kind of unsettling. Uh, so so I popped it and not really knowing what to expect. I was pretty bored. I think I was tired. It was one of those days and I didn't, I, I did, the film didn't click with me at all. Fast forward a few years and watching it in preparation for this episode, I found myself much more in tune with the spirit of fun, with the spirit of adventure. I found that I was also tapping into what I f- began to feel was a, that fun that was reaching, I, I would say the territory of like they're sort of hamming it up, except everybody in this film plays it so straight. Yeah, yeah. Nobody, in fact, so many of the big, so many reveals are taken in stride, only a, two or three seconds of reaction and not a lot of emotion elicited on the on the face. But I, I turned to the critics to see what people had thought about it at the time, because there's so much of that sort of silly bombast and almost kind of cool but kitschy style. And I was reading Time said that Judex has too much low-key charm and seriousness to be wildly funny, but the director seems content to woo a minority taste. And then the New York Times, at the same time when it came out, says Judex suffers from several afflictions, one of which is ambiguity. It's hard to tell whether the director who made it wants us to laugh at it or take it seriously. And so the question at least was coming up at the time as well. And I wondered how people would have been reacting to it in the in the 60s because it does have that sort of it adds in all the style but it's got a wistful nostalgia for those for those times and it and there's I can't remember if it was at the beginning or at the end when there's the the little dedication that talks about it being based on the series and that was you know during hard times which mm. you know during the world war that it had come out and people were were turning to it for distraction for entertainment and remembering it with fondness later on but 1916 and 1963 are quite a ways apart, and I'm not sure how much of that nostalgia would have translated or not. I guess in one sense, uh, going back to the New York Times, was that Bosley Crowther, by the way? It probably was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have a problem determining how I take something. I don't I don't have a problem with not being told I'm supposed to laugh or not here in the way that that specific critic framed that sentiment. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I appreciate that Franju doesn't try to pull my strings. For example, <laughs> I was talking about the music. The music is used very sparingly and yeah. to me incredibly effectively. So you remove that whole big cue card of you're supposed to do this now. 
The Spartan use of music, I thought, was was a really interesting choice because you have themes which are, you know, even now I can hear one of the main themes playing in my head and it's very sticky. But uh, he really takes away, uh, strips away the sound at moments that I I can't, it, it really, it, it, it's another one of those grounding elements because these big audacious themes and all of a sudden it'll cut away and we're watching a man conjure birds or suddenly mm-hmm. we cut away and there's two people fighting and there's no, we're going to, talk about another bombastic action film in the second half of this podcast. And in this, you have people, you know, scuffling on a rooftop or about to cut each other's throats. And all you're really hearing is grunting, some clothing moving, a yeah. couple, some footsteps echoing in this space. You know, there's no, well, and then, there's none of the added sound effects and verve that you would expect. Yeah, yeah. And then inversely, in that little final showdown between Daisy and Marie on the rooftop with the knife... I, if I'm remembering right, that was that was all kind of low-key music and no sound effects. That was like something straight out of a silent film. They're kind of grappling over it and yeah. staggering around, and it's just this low, tense music playing in the background. And we we don't really get sound effects until Marie is tumbling down the edge of the roof. <sighs> One of the things I really liked about about this movie was that kind of intermingling of fantasy and reality because we've we've talked a little bit about how he doesn't really he never he never really telegraphs to you how you're supposed to feel about anything which i can i could that makes me understand why people would say you know it was was i supposed to laugh or not things like that you get this these really fantastical elements like judex his underground graveyard bat cave uh with all these cool scientific contraptions for holding this guy prisoner for the rest of his life but then you also have one scene in particular that I, I'm not quite sure why this was my favorite scene, but one of my probably one of my favorite scenes is when Marie and her boyfriend and their their third guy mutual friend they're throwing Jacqueline over the edge of a bridge, and they're sort of watching her float down the river. And you hear one of them say, "We should have weighed her down." <laughs> and yeah, they're like, it's, an, "It's incredible." Yeah, and then like the, this, and we we were told from the beginning unspeakable mm-hmm. consequences terrible terrible consequences and those things actually happen mm-hmm. to the ex- extent that i almost end up feeling kind of bad for marie and favreau to an extent yeah. you know it's it, it it is again it is a dark film and it is about revenge yeah yeah and i love it because you even get favreau who is very early on proven to be a complete monster hitting hitting a poor old man with his car just for just for looking at him funny essentially and then later on when she's talking when marie is talking to him about her plan you know you could lie low and then you could you could come back out and he was just like no people want me dead like i've lived a terrible life i've been a terrible person i just want to like retire to the countryside with my daughter and granddaughter and just live a quiet peaceful life and it's just kind of it it wasn't so much that he had turned a corner and was like i'm good now it was more just kind of this realization on the life that he's lived and and it, it made that that was like the scene that made me feel a little bit sorry for him it made me sympathize with him this this absolute monster i i just loved the fact that nothing a lot of things would go 90% in a direction 
as far as character exaggeration and things go. But then there was always this other 10% where you've got Judex with this army of masked guys that help him out, which I had to look that up too. Apparently those were, they, those were, those were circus performers as well, or they were, they, there's, there's a backstory to the masked guys who are helping him do a lot of his shenanigans. Cause a lot of his, a lot of his schemes involve multi-person crew. You, you get all these resources, but then you get things where he, he you know, he's got, Jacqueline and he says I I promise I'll take you to your father he's alive and they show up and he's like your father's gone (laughs) he's been taken this is embarrassing there's just lots of these moments of you know best laid plans kind of going out the window when the, the way that these characters appear even Marie who has this really appealing and almost intimidating confidence to her and I I think that was a lot in the way that she was portrayed was just this kind of arrogant and self-assured, but kind of electrifying. But then you have tons of her plans kind of blowing up in her face as well. So nothing is ever perfectly what it is. It's, it is its archetype with this extra bit of unusual texture. I, I just thought it was so funny when they, when they, when they throw Jacqueline off the bridge and they're like, we should have weighed her down. Ah, geez. Like, well, let's watch and see what happens. Ah, this kid found her quick, get in the car. They drive up and see it. Ah, geez. They found her. <laughs> And then they gotta, they have to kidnap her again. And it's, and, and this whole time I'm thinking like, I would be so embarrassed right now if I were them. Like, I would be like, oh my gosh, I can't do anything right. Like, I can't even drown a lady. This is the worst. But yeah, but I, th- then, I used the phrase super criminal earlier. I don't know that that necessarily right. applies right here. Special <laughs> criminals. Yeah. Super duper criminals. Yeah. So then, but then, but then when they try to kidnap her again, they, you know, they, they inject her and they all kind of carry her off or wait, no, that was when they, I've got, they, they capture her so many times I've got it mixed up, but uh, yeah. each time they catch her again, Marie turns to the camera and is kind of like, ha, ha, things are coming up. <laughs> things are coming up, Marie. I'm on top of the world. <laughs> it's like, man, she, she is undeterred. Nothing can, can get her down. Uh, but I liked I it. I think I'm a little more in the uh, Judex camp when it comes to Favro, at least. I, you guys are being a little soft on this guy who has <laughs> run this old man over with his car. And now all he really wants is to have a nice, quiet place in the country. Yeah, I, He I'm doesn't not... actually say, I'm sorry, I should have never right. done that. Right. <laughs> he expresses no remorse. He just says, being... I want to be left alone, yeah. essentially. Yeah, can you guys just cut me a break and just uh, no pop in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He doesn't want to blow up the world. Let's give him a Nobel Prize. I don't know if <laughs> if you guys want to take the side of Judex. I'll happily I'll happily go on Marie's side. We may <laughs> we may end up uh, bumbling through a lot more things, but you know we get we get cool outfits and <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's for sure. Oh yeah, I want my black leotard. I don't think she I could do, pull she it does. off. She does. I, I love the way she plays the part. You know, she really is. She really is so cool and collected, and, and it's sort of a I can't. I can never f- seem to follow the logic of why sometimes they're trying to kill people or stab people, or when they're just gonna tie them up and lock them in some room and wait till somebody else comes to try and do something to them. But mm-hmm. it makes for, yeah, mm-hmm. it adds a lot to the the sociopathy, the twisting a, nature of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is one of those elements. Yeah, for sure. I did love for me like the the finale the final 20 30 minutes were an absolute roller coaster where early on in that climax I threw my hands up and I was like literally anything could happen at this point so I'm just going <laughs> to I'm just going to go along for the ride cuz I think within very quick succession we get 
two two more of my favorite moments, which we've already talked about. One of them where Judex kind of breaks through the window as Marie and and Favreau are talking, and she's like, "Judex, oh!" And he sort of like walks toward him, and then Favreau does this total pro gamer move, sort of slips around the side, grabs a brick, and just <laughs> smashes him in the head. And it's like he's in his periphery; he's just walking past him, bonk, oh! And <laughs> and then minutes later, um, you know. Kokanting meets Daisy, the circus performer, and a traveling circus who are going to come and help now. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, like I, I feel like if I'm ever, if I ever finally break into screenwriting and I find myself in a tricky third act, I'm like, oh gosh, how do I wrap this up? Ah, so and so's long lost acrobatic friend. Bring in the circus. Yeah, the circus comes to town. <laughs> but uh, and then isn't that an amazing feeling though that. Anything can happen. Yeah. yeah, I felt the same thing too. Even though I'd have I'd seen it already, I still feel that whenever I put it on, I guess I leave enough time in between viewings. But that's why we go to the movies. Exactly, that's one of the best feelings you can get from one of these. And this will this will make for a fun mirror to hold up to Six Underground, I think, because they, I had a, I had slightly an inverse reaction to that one of gee, what's going to happen next? <laughs> <laughs> Judex, that I, I've. It, it, it was a perfect counterbalance, I thought, because, yeah, Judex, I was guessing right up until the end. And it, and it even pulled out a fun little surprise for me. It's weird. I can lose myself in the movie, but there's always this part of my brain that is kind of leaning back sarcastically and being like, all right, what else you got for me? Make me laugh. But there's this moment when Judex and Jacqueline are together on the beach and, you know, at the very, very end, this little happy moment. And then as they're walking, they kiss and he sort of reaches into his sleeve and pulls out a pigeon and lets it fly away. And I was like, how long has he had that in his coat? Uh, <laughs> a magician always has one of those in his coat. Yeah. <laughs> He's always keep a spare pigeon. You never know. But I, I just loved in the final seconds of the movie, I'm still like, whoa, didn't see that one coming either. <laughs> so yeah, it was like, I've got the biggest grin on my face just talking about it because it was such a, I, I feel, it feels wrong to call it silly, but I guess whimsy or something. I it, it was a lot. It was fun. It was a fun, fun movie. Well, good. good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Well, what we what we usually did uh, leading up to this moment, we'll usually sort of stop and ask who we think would 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 enjoy this movie the most. But we've sort of realized it it, it almost kind of just turns into a regular movie review of like I give it four stars, you know. And we we've had this recent idea where. We want to talk about which movie did it better. This is, after all, streaming versus Criterion. We want to see who 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 comes out of the ring the champion, depending on what your criteria is. <laughs> Trying to find criteria, I think, is part of the entertainment value. So we're going to – if it's okay with you guys, we'll save closing thoughts until we get to the end of Six Underground and we'll wrap up the whole – our our little duet of films and and kind of compare and contrast, see who who who, who reigns victorious after these two go head-to-head. Hopefully we got some people excited about seeing it. Yeah, that's my hope. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> if the, yeah, if, there, if there's one takeaway, just go go watch it. Go go watch it. And <laughs> I, I'm I'm happy to say I think we've I mean we have spoiled some of the major plot points. So if you can go back in time and not hear those, but there are about a hundred others. Yeah, that... there's exactly there's so many. <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> <laughs> by the time you get to the twists we've spoiled, your mind will be so blown by all the other little twists and turns that you'll have forgotten to expect it in the first place. Bo and I were trying to find a good response to Judex. I think this was a trickier film than most for us to think of a good response to because initially we were thinking we'd go after like a superhero film, kind of like a something that can owe its roots. There are far fewer 
streaming original superhero films than you would think. Yeah. I sort of went looking, thinking, oh, there's got to be a slew of these. And there really isn't. There's one or two sort of oddball ones. There's plenty of series, but not a lot of streaming original films Yeah. that take the, the superhero route. Yeah, so we kind of went for the... The, the next best thing we could think of, and I guess best is the operative word, the next relevant thing, which was Michael Bay's Six Underground. Maybe, Bo, you, do you have a synopsis planned for that? A 30-second synopsis? I do. All right. Yeah. I have Six Underground, the Michael Bay film. Uh, yeah, well, I'm ready. Are you going to time me? Oh, I started five seconds ago. Here. It, it counts against <laughs> you right now. The minute you said Six Underground, it was going. Okay, hurry, no. Bo, hurry. The clock is ticking. No, no. All right. Starting now. Calling this a Michael Bay film should go a long way in explaining the pop. Through a series of peculiar flashbacks and stylized action sequences, we meet an elite team of mysterious vigilantes, each known by a number one through six, with number one being the leader, an enigmatic billionaire played by Ryan Reynolds. The mission of the team is to act as judge, jury, and executioner against any powerful villain they decide is beyond the reach of traditional law and order. The opening sequence of the film takes out Comrade Six and replacing him with Seven as they tangle with the brutal dictator of Turkestan makes up the rest of the movie. And in that amount of time that you took, Michael Bay had 400 shots. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to know I wasn't the only one who was nearly brought to seizures by the action scenes in this film. (laughs) Good job, Bo, by the way. 30 seconds almost on the the dot right there. That was very nice. Yeah, so... uh, (laughs) Chaotic synopsis, chaotic movie. Like I said, as soon as Michael Bay, as soon as his name is uttered, we know that we're going through what people have begun to call Bayhem. And it's <laughs> it's going to be a wild, raucous action film. He's got a very stark brand. Everyone knows Michael Bay. They know what it is. Yeah. And a lot of people love it. He's very, I mean, his movies always make money. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I want to, I, I'm going to do my best to respect that fact that there are people who love Michael Bay. This was actually one of Netflix released their numbers. This was one of their most successful debuts of an original film. So clearly a lot of people were into it, at least enough to watch it once. They got billions, well, not billions. That's almost as many people as there are in the world. Millions of views. <laughs> He's not that popular. So I, so I, I want to be respectful of of anyone who who really really got a kick out of it because it is it is an action-packed movie I, I have had a high tolerance for michael bay up until i saw transformers 2 which was in 2009 Bo actually warned me not to see it in 2009 because he knew that i liked the first transformers and he said trust me i know what transformers 2 is supposed to be don't see it you are going to regret it and i said ah you don't like anything fun and i went and saw it <laughs> and <laughs> Who's laughing now? (laughs) (laughs) Me, but it's the kind of laughter you use to hide the tears, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I went into this a bit more Bay-weary than I might have been 10 years ago. (laughs) I didn't know what you were saying, Chris, about it being one of their most successful. And it's one of those things where you just have to trust Netflix when they reveal those things because it doesn't work like traditional movies do. Right, right. But on that, it's it's really interesting because – they cut, I think, something around $150 million to Michael Bay to make this film. It, it really shows an interesting direction for Netflix to take because it's sort of, to my mind, it's sort of a direct blow against cinema, against movie theaters, I mean, because this is the movie theater type of movie in the sense that it's a spectacle. It's very much an epic spectacle that you would think, you know, if you are into it, that you want to see it on a great big screen where you can you know, viscerally take in everything that's that's happening. 
Uh, at the same time, they were cutting $150 million to Martin Scorsese. And so you get Netflix turning from being this this outlet for indie filmmakers who can't get into the cinema or a new mode of storytelling in a changing world to really just kind of nabbing a film that was guaranteed to make a box office splash if it had gone the traditional route. I think that's an interesting point, Bo, as well, because we're in the middle of this newness of, for example, the Warner Brothers dropping everything on HBO Max when it comes out. And there's a a specific point cited by a number of filmmakers who are pissed off at at that, that this will then draw budgets away from traditional, like you're sort of saying, quote unquote, big time tentpole cinema. These big yeah. old superhero movies that cost 40 bazillion dollars to make, that same investment won't be made by these streaming services, which I I, I don't think that that's actually true. Mm. But anyway, it, it was it, it is I think it does signal something interesting happening. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't I mean it, that's why I was saying I was surprised that it was such a big hit because Number one, you know, people, I mean, I know that Michael Bay is popular and that his films make money, but I didn't, I don't know. I, I hadn't heard of Six Underground, frankly. I hadn't heard of it, mm. not at all, until it came up on the list. I don't know whether uh, the rest of you had heard of it before, but until I was, until we were combing through looking for what we were going to pair Judex with, it wasn't even on my radar at all, despite being a Michael Bay, Ryan Reynolds, massive, big budget action flick. Yeah, yeah. You gotta be, you gotta be more streaming savvy, Bo. I don't know if I'm the, yeah, I don't know if I'm the person to ask because the last Michael Bay movie I saw upon release was The Rock in 1996 <laughs> in the theater. It's a good well, place it, to cash out. <laughs> I guess when I'm in our Netflix queue, that it it came up for me a few times, as in you know the it, where they have the new thing where they're playing the trailer sometimes for it. So you gotta quit quit messing up my algorithm. No, I. It, <laughs> Somebody, I think it's your sister that's messing it up because I'm not selecting Ryan Reynolds movies and I'm not selecting yeah. Michael Bay movies. So, uh, but I do select other action movies. Okay. I blame yeah. the, I blame Chris for the the Netflix films that he's had me watch throughout this podcast, but this popped up as a 93% match for me yeah, yeah. when I, I was think, looking. I think ours was in the 80s or 90s too. Sorry. That's been my secret goal. With this whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's because Netflix doesn't understand that I seek out Arnold Schwarzenegger movies with some sense of irony sometimes. <laughs> right. occasionally. Yeah, exactly. Well, but yeah. And this is this is a good chance to talk just briefly about Netflix's rating system. There used to be a five star system, which I thought was a great way to say, you know, it's not the most comprehensive way to rank a movie, but it's better than thumbs up or thumbs down because I see – I love science fiction and there's a lot of really, really terrible sci-fi on Netflix. And so I'll watch it. I'll watch a sci-fi movie. I love watching things I hate. It's a weird thing I have. So I'll, I'll – I finished all of <laughs> Another Life. I've watched a lot of their not-so-good sci-fi content. And I'll usually at the end, like, I want to give it a thumbs down. But I know that if I give it a thumbs down, that's my way of saying I don't want more sci-fi. I mean, how are they going to interpret a thumbs down. I, I don't like sci-fi. I don't like this lead actor. I don't like this specific story. Like there's just, there's not enough to go on. And so now I, you end up with Hubie Halloween in your feed and there's, 
how do I, it's, it's difficult to So they're going to, to roll out this, this new model where you answer this essay question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're going to have someone score it and yeah. look for specific keywords, and then they'll get back to you within a week with updated algorithm. <laughs> well, I, I do think this also goes back to, in general, these people say, oh, this is going to ruin whatever. I really don't think that people in charge generally have a great sense of movie going public. Um, mm -hmm. And it is incredibly mm -hmm. fractured anyway. So there's there's no more sort of we're all going to go or we're all not going to go. It's just there's so yeah. many other ways to do things. And yeah, some of us like to explore all of those ways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, we we haven't talked about the movie itself. We've been talking about the business of making movies so far. Are we avoiding talking about it? We should we should dive right in. And, you know, speaking of talking about this movie, one thing that this movie likes to do is talk about this movie because <laughs> we open we open with a bunch of foreshadowing and exposition. Ghosts have one power above all others, to haunt the living. Haunt them for what they've done. By about minute four, I had timed, we've started to get, we're starting to rain a bunch of explosions. And then at 45 minutes, the whole setup and exposition again. Yeah. How many billionaires do you actually know? You've heard of Elon Musk, Bill Gates. That's the, okay. Of course you haven't heard of me before. That's how I like it. I'm a good inventor. Created a lot of tech, tracking, and hiding digital trails of people. Some I even sold to the CIA, where I met some interesting people. Did some adventurous shit. But slowly I cleaned house, and I had other ideas. Used my money to help people in bad situations. But I realized my billions, that's not enough. Governments don't really help people in need. So I said, the government. I'm going to do this myself. So here we are. And then at an hour and five minutes, we get it again. Yes. <laughs> the world is wrapped in red tape, and I couldn't cut through it even with a billion-dollar sword. So we left behind everything, everyone, to become no one. Where this, this movie has so many flashbacks and, and jumps forward, and then... It, it, like I say, at least three, four times that we're getting the explanation yeah. of team of vigilantes that were put together this way. And when we don't, yeah. they, again and again, they keep stating this. There's that moment when they're getting off a plane and we get Ryan Reynolds voiceover saying like, to do it, we had to become yeah. ghosts. And it's like, it, we're an hour and 15 minutes in. I know, I know you're ghosts. <laughs> and it was, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if you guys felt this way or if you've had the pleasure of seeing this other film, but it reminded me a lot actually of Suicide Squad. Not just in the premise, but also, oh my goodness, in the execution, Suicide Squad had a very similar thing where you've got probably six or seven points throughout the first half of the movie where they're explaining the setup to you. And then you even get, similar to this movie, you get multiple intros to characters 30, 40 minutes in where we're, we're suddenly getting an intro to the backstory of four or five or I don't know. I can't keep the numbers straight with the people. But you, you get these little flashes of like one moment when we're introduced to, I think it's four, the uh, the hitman. Uh, four is the Skywalker. Oh, the, three is the hitman. Three's the hitman. Three's the hitman. We get this flashback of him shooting a man in a pool. Please, Marcelo, you don't have to do this. No, I do my job. Cuántas vidas tiene? Solo una nomás. I can't sleep. 
not here. Where's your mommy? I don't have a mommy. And it's just this, it felt like something out of Robot Chicken. It's not like this, this, this sketch comedy bit about the, the, the downsides of being a hitman. Yeah, I half expected him to pick her up and she becomes his new <laughs> ward and he teaches her the business is what I thought might happen there. This structural thing, though, there's a couple of ways that I think this ties directly to Judex. There's mm-hmm. a few things. The style over substance thing. Yes. When you go back to Franju's self-assessment, I think it equally applies to Michael Bay. Mm-hmm. Not so hot on the writing, but I'll stick with these exciting visuals. Yeah, the mm-hmm. investment and in the action sequences and the level of detail, that's pretty astounding. Mm-hmm. And then you're basically swapping out a series of cliffhanger endings for a series of set pieces. So it functions in a similar way. It's just excess. We stole from, I can't even remember who we stole it from, Chris. Who did we steal the bumping the lamp from? Oh, no. Uh... Captain Christian? I yeah, think? Captain Christian, who's this uh, YouTube critic, but he talks about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the way that as they're stylizing and, and fixing the lighting to work for the animated and the real life characters, they there's a scene where they where somebody bumps a lamp. This is called bumping the lamp, a phrase coined by Disney during the production of Roger Rabbit to describe going above and beyond what was expected of the animators. It would have been perfectly feasible if Roger stayed flatly illuminated throughout the scene like a cartoon normally would, but instead, the animators put in the time to shade every cell uniquely so that the practical light would bounce off from the same way it would a physical object. And they had to account for that dynamically shifting lighting with every contour in Roger's limbs, his clothes, his face, the cast shadow he creates on the environment, as well as the texture of the light, the slightest difference in color temperatures, the lamp sways. Even Roger's ears have a slight translucency since they're much thinner than the rest of his body. They thought of that. Audiences had no expectation for this level of realism in 1988. But all these seemingly superfluous details help sell the effect at a subconscious level. Which makes for a very uh, compelling and convincing thing that they had to animate and shoot, but made it very difficult and is something that if they hadn't done it, we probably wouldn't have noticed. And Michael Bay actually has a lot of these that he's putting in his movies, in this movie in particular, that I don't know how much of it is coming specifically from him or if he has you know a team of collaborators that he's always with, but the detail in his very complex or complicated, if you like, shots and action sequences is really astounding. I mean, the way his mind works, all the the vectors and lines, the parallax, the sweeping circular camera, the the, the sheer, <laughs> I don't know, the, the levels of destruction and the way that it's brought about. I'm thinking of in the initial chase scene, which I think is through Florence that we kind of open up on. Mm-hmm. And there's somebody with a, at some point, one of the characters, I can't remember who, pulls out a machine gun and is trying to gun down either the good guys or the bad guys. I don't know. (laughs) And uh, some people on motorcycles get caught in the crossfire. Go, 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 go! And, you know, the machine gun just chews up their bikes and they go flying off. And there's just so many things that that don't need to happen, which is part of this Bayhem excess, which in a, in a way is, if not admirable, at least astonishing. <laughs> yeah. I used the word style over substance, but maybe that's not even the right word. Maybe it's iconography mm, yeah. over substance at this point, because it's just big 
blocks of stuff. Yeah, basically. yeah. There's not the the subtlety of symbolism. It's basically look at my big American boner. For <laughs> right. <two hours. laughs> yeah, and if you have one boner, let's put twenty more in there. Yeah. It, it, Why stop it, there? It's just everything, and I. I assume that Red Bull and Monster paid for this movie directly <laughs> since we see them so much re- reflected. But, yeah. you know, I, I adore action movies. Action movies done right do exactly what they're supposed to do. And it's super exciting. And this is just so long. Yeah. And <laughs> runs in an order that to me is at cross purposes with the level of excitement. And exactly. I, I did read that it's set up to possibly be a franchise mm-hmm. for Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> so, and that makes sense to a degree yeah. because I could see people wanting to watch that over again. And obviously they set it up with, well, we've hit one of these, what is it? Nine targets or something. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know anymore, but it, the, the reflection upon reflection upon reflection and it's, it's, it's too much for what I think he could have pared down. Yeah. He hasn't yeah. yet hit that Shane Black pare it down yeah, you in your that, renaissance. But like we've mentioned a few times, people are still flocking to these movies in droves. They're paying for themselves, obviously. There's yeah. an audience for them for stuff like the Fast and the Furious series, which is kind True. of what I see this lining up as, yeah, a, makes as an opposite number to. So yeah. who are we to say? I really do like to come at these things. I judge them on whether they're achieving the thing they're trying to do, mm-hmm. you know. And I think it succeeds there for sure. I think it could, I still think it could have succeeded better with shave fifteen minutes off of it. I think <laughs> I think he would have really hit the mark. I think he mm-hmm. I think he would have gotten to what he had wanted to get to. Well, it's interesting to me because watching a Michael Bay film has has kind of made me realize that fans of action movies are not necessarily cut from the same cloth. Because for me, two of my favorite movies ever to watch any day of the week are John Wick and Mad Max Fury Road, both of which are one hundred percent action bonanzas just with 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 copious amounts of violence and insanity and whatnot but a a movie like six underground i i I found myself exhausted and i think part of it was a a lot of the action sequences in six underground i mean we've talked about the the uh, insane amount of cuts in a michael bay movie the number of 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 hard hard edits and and cutting from this to this to this to this to this switching angles to to such a point that it becomes disorienting to the point that i can't even necessarily tell what the action is i hear a loud crunchy punch sound and i see uh you know a a disembodied eye on the floor of a car and you can kind of string together okay this person's hurt real bad i think this person's the one who did it for me as someone who who gets a kick out of the escapism and the the craziness of just seeing on-screen violence somehow even this movie felt gratuitous to me and it might have been because it seemed to only ever linger on a shot when there was actual blood and guts to look at. When the actual action was going down, it seemed like it couldn't focus on one spot for more than two seconds. But the minute that a guy's head explodes with a grenade inside of it and it falls on the floor for a, a lingering shot of his stump, suddenly it's like, oh, let's hang out here for a sec. You know, let's let's just take it in. So it's interesting. Like the the, the pacing of it, I consider myself a big action fan and I couldn't – I couldn't I, – I had a hard time finding – joy in in this movie what you're saying about john wick made versus this made me think of a really at least hilarious to me mm. metaphor mm. in terms of <laughs> summertime as a kid the toys you had to play with john wick is a slip and slide it goes straight forward at the thing it's intense there might be a rock under it here or there you hurt yourself <laughs> 
but you going point A to point B. Yeah. Six Underground is that little egg-shaped thing that had those little whipping tiny hoses out of its head <laughs> that shot off in a million different directions and slapped your leg and hurt like hell. <laughs> but no focus. Not nearly as fun in the long run, I felt like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yet you see kids playing with the weird egg tentacle toy, and you're like, I wish... I wish I had whatever those kids have <laughs> to be to be so pleased by this insane toy that keeps whipping my legs. Yeah. I also think there's too much dialogue in this film. Yeah, there really mm-hmm. is. I, I, yeah, if they had if they had paired that that back too, I I, I think I would have liked it a lot more. Why don't you just send him your resume? <laughs> Maybe I have already. You could be Maybe that. I'm up for six underground point two. Oh snap! <laughs> yeah, there you go. That was something that I thought was interesting about this because you have. You have Reynolds here doing his his thing, and you know he's he's doing all of his sarcastic, smart alecky quips. And I I was wondering about this versus Deadpool, and then I, I Deadpool, and then I looked, and yeah, it turns out it's the same writers, same writers, as, yeah, as the yeah as the Deadpool franchise, I guess, as the, at this point. So you've got that going on, and for how for what this film is, I found the script surprisingly literate or at least surprisingly uh, surprising in its attempts at literacy maybe i mean you i get... think you're crazy <laughs> well I, I, there, and, and no no you're, what you're I mean... giving it way too much credit literacy no, adjacent no. what it i mean was, is it was the way one that liner it's, after one it's, liner it's just pulling for but i mean that in it's in it's in the way that it's looking at Film. I mean, it's pulling. It's clearly doing a Butch cast. It's trying for a Butch and Sundance thing. It mentions Butch and Sundance. They're trying for that repar, repartee. They they've got uh, all the uh, strange references to uh, Leave It to Beaver, which Ryan Reynolds keep complaining that millennials aren't going to get, as if Ryan Reynolds was the audience for Leave It to Beaver. <laughs> and then you've got Shakespeare going on in there. They're referencing stuff all over, and they keep trying to tie it up in neat ways, the beginning and the end and all the flashbacks. They're clearly looking at a lot of movies, and they're feeling pretty smug. And they're going in and arranging things with, yeah, and then peppering it with all these one-liners. And I just thought the what they're trying to do in this Michael Bay film feels a bit more than I'm than I'm picking mm. up from, you know, like the Transformers series. But it's still and and that's one of the reasons why it's still confusing. Transformers at least fully embraces what Michael Bay has always said to his critics that he makes movies for teenage boys. But this one yeah. keeps right. I don't know where it's going or who it's trying to hit. Cole, you better get your comment out because I've got one. Okay. <laughs> don't you, make me forget. Give me a second here. What I'm picturing here. <laughs> Is the elevator pitch bringing up Butch and Sundance? Go all the way back to the early 70s. You have William Goldman in the elevator saying, Okay, I've got this idea for a buddy Western movie. Okay, who's starring in it? Chevy Chase. <laughs> That's what would come out of this, basically. Yeah. When do you decide to be your generation's Chevy Chase, I guess, is the thing. Uh, so here's what I want to say to all of that. Um, because I, 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 you are absolutely correct. They are feeling super duper smug. And here's why they're feeling smug. Not because they themselves are literate, but because they're specifically referencing their own literate references. Uh-huh. They are telling you that that's what they are saying. They are saying, hey, yeah. Cole, Shakespeare once said, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Leave it to Beaver was this thing, not yep. going on any sort of shared memory, but telling you yes. 
the reference. So it, it, it's not relying on any uh, a bit of intelligence from the audience or, you know, any any ability for me to share in the wink. Right. Mm-hmm. They're telegraphing all of it. And at the same time, the authors of these things are getting older and older and older, but the audience is staying the same. And to me, that's where the disconnect is happening now. Mm. It's the opposite, basically, of watching or getting the most out of mystery science theater 3000 <laughs> where you have to know a lot of stuff to get the jokes yeah, yeah yeah you have to know a lot about film and television and music and you have to have that innate yeah. knowledge it can't right. just be explained to you in that moment and then you're appropriately appreciating what's being said well yeah and and ryan reynolds is only getting older but he's supposed to be car- playing a character who is not that old and doesn't have that same level of collective experience. And so there, to me, there's a huge disconnect with it yeah. and why it is not, in fact, particularly literate, because these people are aiming for something. And if they went back to writing for teenage boys or were slightly older than teenage boys, it would probably come off a little bit better. That's what's so confusing to me is they're, they're pulling out these references and there, I mean, this this certainly takes a more you know quote unquote adult approach in the sense that it it does it co- it goes for that that kind of PGR category that is happening with streaming, where they're realizing there's not going to be barriers to to teenagers seeing this like there possibly could be at a cinema if it was rated R. So we're going to embrace the R rating, but we're still keeping the sensibilities geared toward that age. And so you get jokes like uh, nuns flipping off the camera and all these sort of vulgar asides, uh, uh, scatological stuff and, you know, the holding the eyeball and all these kind of things. It's just this mismatch of sensibilities that I don't really know where it's supposed to land or who it's supposed to be for. I mean, all these references to the cleavers that are... (laughs) I mean, he cracks it like a joke every time. Who it's supposed to be for, I think. And like we said, we don't want to unnecessarily... Uh, rag on these, but I really do think a significant portion of the audience for these is guys who make a lot of muscles in the mirror. Yes, yeah. yes, that's yeah. actually, and they don't they don't care if there's a cleavers <laughs> joke in there, and they don't care if they get it or not. We were talking about this in a different uh, for a different film, but in terms of who are the writers writing for, I think they're writing for themselves. Yes, and I think Michael Bay is then doing all the visuals mm. for the audience that he knows is there, and there's a disconnect with those two things. Yeah, yeah. So the dialogue is for one group, and it's just the writers thinking they're being hilarious, and then the visuals are for the teenagers. I I I agree so passionately. I think it's interesting. <laughs> For me, the the there's this there's this incredible mishmash of so many conflicting elements. The 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 violence, for instance, is so brutal yet, as we've said, so incredibly juvenile. There's there's this bloody collateral damage in almost every scene, but it's depicted so gleefully and so cavalier that the only thing running through Bay's head must have been like, "Ha, oh, this is gonna look cool." when the blood flies onto the screen from this guy. At the same time, you, we talked a little bit about how they have these these kind of hollow references that don't mean anything. A feeling I had a few times watching the movie, it reminded me of my first and only reading of Ready Player One. I don't want to cast any shade at people who love Ready Player One. It's one of my least favorite books I've read, specifically because, very similarly, I got the vibe from the writing in this film. It feels like they're writing this for themselves. It's kind of like a smug, sort of self-satisfied feeling of kind of trying to show off both how smart they are and how funny and hip they are. And you get these lines like at the very beginning, good grief, there's this big car chase sequence and there's you know, lots of violence and stuff. And then we keep cutting back to 
them talking to this to to this 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 mafia guy that they were talking to beforehand and i even there've been a few times where i just wrote down lines as, like as they were said cuz i was like i can't forget that this was something somebody actually said ryan reynolds <laughs> says i'm trying to help you here you know anything beyond a simple yes is going to just super suck for your face uh, what, what what can you say <laughs> i <laughs> it's it, it's it's one of yeah. those things like this feels like it was written by either it feels like it was either written by a 40 year old trying to fit in with the 15 year olds or a 15 year old trying to fit in with the 40 year olds it it's this weird uncomfortable like it feels like you're in a hot tub with all your friends in high school and some big old hairy guy comes and joins you and starts trying to crack sexual jokes and you're like what's happening this yeah. is incredibly uncomfortable you nailed it <laughs> or Hear me out okay. for a, a third option. <laughs> okay. It's written by an AI that you've crammed all these actions oh. into from the last 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those memeing Twitter bots finally got a job. Here's my question with all this. So these movies, which are very, very popular with audiences, or it, or at least make a lot of money, however you want to swing that, but but are critically panned, typically, the, the Michael Bay films. But you can pit it against something with the same kind of level of bombast and relentless action as like Chris was saying, something like Mad Max Fury Road, which of course um, is adored by the critics. And you can look, and we can look at, you know, the narrative drive of those and sort of infer the why one works more than the other. But given the, and I'm, I have some ignorance here because I haven't seen the Deadpool franchise, but the Deadpool movies were from everything I hear, they were a lot of fun. They were received pretty well critically. They did well with audiences. So it seems like why can't you take, you know, the writers from Deadpool and the star of Deadpool and mix it with this big action thing and get something that's that's really fun and works? Why does that smugness work in Deadpool, but not here in Six Underground. I think Chris was on to something when he was talking about the the mishmash of everything, a consistent tone. Deadpool has that mm-hmm. beginning to end. And even if it's a tone you don't like, you know, I like clever. I don't like, look at how clever I am. Yes. There's a, that's a totally different feeling. But this, the, the plan, for instance, it's elusive mm. and hard to remember because essentially... The plan doesn't matter. It's not that it's complicated or convoluted. It's easy to follow. It just doesn't make you care to follow it. Yes. And that's the difference. The narrative drive, like you were saying, for most other stories, I I am invested in those stories. I am not because of this inability to hold on to a consistent tone, perform certain storytelling functions. And before I go, I don't want to sound completely negative about this because there are some things that... I really enjoy and appreciate about this. For instance, yeah, me too. I love the parkour sequences. Yeah, those are yeah. incredible. And I love, I love, even though it only appeals to us, I love that THX moment. That, <laughs> the I, sound? yes, I love, I love that. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I love John Wick. I <laughs> yeah. am a gigantic John Wick fan. Yes. But, but I think it is. It does come back to stakes, and it does come back to having something that you care about. For example, mm-hmm. the Fast and the Furious movies. I, I, I don't care about, but I can understand some motivations for people who do like that. There is a sense that this is all about family and it's a crew, not a crew of self-hating dirtbags yeah, all the time. Their motivation for this is the one thing I don't understand because all along we're being told this is 
altruism. Mm-hmm. This sub- is being done. The, it is the greatest higher purpose that no good. one else could possibly do, and it is the thing that needs to be done. This right. is your ultimate. Let's go back in time and kill Hitler. Yes. But what it is is just nihilism the whole time. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. And it, it's it's interesting because that's actually yeah. As I as I was watching it, I was thinking like these themes are all over the place. But I was thinking how many people on planet Earth have watched. Six Underground and said the themes are all over the place. Because, because mm-hmm. to me, like the, the premise of the film, I'm watching it and I'm thinking, why wasn't this Mission Impossible? Why wasn't this James Bond? Why is it Six Underground? Why why this setting? Because I'm I was thinking, you know, that yeah. what sets this apart, what makes this unique is Ryan Reynolds' billionaire character who gets so rich and sees a few atrocities and decides he's going to save the world and fake his death and become a superhero and pay for an, elu- a, an elite Ocean's Eleven squad of, of – of ragtag misfits to take on tyrants. As I'm watching it, there were multiple times where I would ask myself, how would this have been different if he wasn't a billionaire who faked his death and recruited a team of of, of pros? Because the, him him having been a billionaire, in my mind, I, I, I read the synopsis to the film and I thought, okay, this is going to be an action comedy, but not necessarily comedy in the form of Ryan, Ryan Reynolds saying this is going to super suck for your face. I thought more comedy in the terms of a guy who thinks that because he's rich, he can save the world. Somebody who thinks because I have money, I can be James Bond. And then the harsh reality of something kind of like kick-ass, but you know, from the other side of it, where you have somebody who who thinks that where there's a will, there's a way, and then finds that maybe you need more than just money. Like maybe he's not a really good fighter. Maybe he's not good at planning. He just, so I thought you could have a lot of comedic elements coming into that. But no, this guy functions, he's like Q and James Bond and M rolled into one character and his only real flaw is that he doesn't want to get too close to his family. Uh, can't uh, we said no names? Uh, yeah, and and it, it's supposed to be. It only matters if you become a ghost. If what you left behind was so compelling that we really feel for this huge struggle. Exactly. That you, you, everything that you sacrificed to go do this. Exactly. Nobody sacrificed shit here. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> And and it and the resolution also doesn't matter. Yes. Is the brother any better than the other? No. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, what it, what you made me think of just then talking about mining this for the comedic aspect of it. It did happen that he did fail constantly at this. He's very bad at this. Mm. These missions go wrong constantly. People are dying left and right, <laughs> but there's no comedy found yeah. in it. Right. Yeah. Including. Yeah. Hundreds of civilians, hundreds of people are in their cars fire and they're dead and there's there's yes. there's nothing yes. made no. for that. No self-reflection, Including, no self-awareness. Yeah. No. You don't put those cute doggies in danger like that. You gotta pay a price for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's so interesting because That's the John Wick lesson. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Don't screw with the dog. It, it's it's so interesting to me because there are multiple times multiple times where they'll just be talking about the mission or something else. And then suddenly Ryan Reynolds will just interject. He'll be like, you know, guys, faking your death is cool because it means you're free. You guys, you got it all wrong. Best thing about being dead is the freedom. I mean, we're all going to die. May as well do it while we're alive, right? When you're young, you, you you lock yourselves into all of these bad decisions, you know, m- marriages and mortgages and all that kind of stuff. But you die, it's all erased. Gone. From that point forward, all that matters is what you choose. 
And it's just what like like so I mean, are they not on a very specific mission with rules they have to follow for that mission? Like could they could they honestly say that each of them is a free a free agent? You know, was it really about freedom? It's just, but he'll say it multiple times, like becoming a ghost, kill you know, quote unquote yeah. dying. You know, it's so badass and cool. But anyways, here's all this very run of the mill Mission Impossible style action that really is not informed. Again, like you said, Erica, there's if the, if there was some trace of of significance to the story of the lives they left behind. If if the fact that they left their lives behind factored into the plot at all, if maybe maybe they did it to protect the ones they love, but then somehow the bad guy found out the lives they left behind when they faked their deaths, and he's gonna get the he's, turns out their one fail safe isn't as safe as they thought. You know, any any number of yeah. Well, that's what happened in Mission Impossible Four. So yeah. I guess they can't also steal that. But <laughs> you can only yeah, steal so he much. Just, he was banging some super hot lady, <laughs> and they could have been continued to be super duper hot together and yeah. had that adorable little moppet baby. Maybe. And he could bring her into the damn desert to him. He's got a billion dollars. So none, none of it. It's all just dumb. As hell. No, it, yeah, it's going back to that thing about, like I said, about the guys making muscles in the mirror. It's, yeah. it's they think this stuff looks cool and they wish they were doing it. But the thing is, they aren't. Yeah. What they're doing instead is driving around our neighborhood with their glass packs and revving their engine a lot and just annoying everybody. <laughs> That's who's watching this. Yeah. I even send people dick pics on one, <laughs> I guess, probably too. It's funny. I wrote down a note partway through the movie where I just said, "You guys, dot dot dot." I think Bay wants to fake his own death. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so many no. moments. It's his hand. It, you know, it's like having a go for it, bud. <laughs> it's like having a married friend come over to your house and just talk about how much fun it must be to be single. And it's like, look, buddy, you don't have to, you don't need to dump this on me. If you want to fake your death, do it. I don't like, don't drag me and my movie watching into this. Here's the thing, though. He would never be able to shut up about it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. the best it's, part of faking your own death. We mentioned you can... the, the Euro crime film thing. <laughs> The best part of faking your own death is you can tell people about it. It's like it's like the veganism meme, <laughs> yeah. but with faking your own death. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned the Euro crime films that we like so much when we were talking about Judex. Yeah. I think about Rafifi and that central heist, which is silent for what, like 25 minutes? Yeah. Can mm. you imagine Michael Bay ever just being silent for 25 minutes <laughs> in any medium? <laughs> No. And yeah. uh, going back again to two you mentioned, uh, John Wick, which I love, and Mad Max, which I don't care for enough, but everybody knows when to shut the hell up. Yeah. Yeah. Let a scene speak for itself. There are multiple moments where you can really... I call, I don't know if this is the proper term, but I call it. I say I say you can really see the writing, like you can you can feel the writer breathing down your neck as you're watching the movie. Yeah, yeah. where there's well put. Yeah, there's lots of these moments where you don't. It, it doesn't feel like you're watching a movie. It doesn't feel like you're hearing a story. It really does feel like one of those guys who flexes in front of the mirror is just telling you about this this hot chick he banged last weekend. There, there's there's a moment um, after. Six, the driver, he dies early on and they're having a little burial at sea. And one of the guys is crying. Another character turns to him and says, are you crying? And it's, I, I, there's so many moments where the, the, the overall tone, the voice of the movie feels like it was written by a grade school bully who never was able to ditch the instincts, you know, who, who, who grew up and got a job writing movies, but he still is kind of like, Oh, you're going to cry. Like, and there's, there's lots of these moments like that throughout the film where it's like this faux machismo where it's, you were saying the difference between some of these things that work 
like Mad Max Fury Road mm -hmm. versus this. When you bring up those specific examples, the only thing I can think, the only word that pops into my head is artless. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's the difference. That that makes sense. Sorry, Bo, it sounded like you got that clip working frighteningly for a second. Well, I'll just I'll just play. It's Ryan Reynolds, uh, some sort of promotional material, I assume. I'll just play it. Best part about shooting with Michael Bay? I don't know. A lot of people would say the action. But for me, it's the stillness, you know? It's like the... His quiet moments. The character, you sort of feel it, you're looking like lost in the character's eyes. Those are the moments for me, I think. So clearly they're they're <laughs> referencing it. They're trying to be aware of the fact that there is no, you know, there is no stillness, there is no reflection. It's all just bayhem nonsense and fun. But what I think happens in in Six Underground is that it is just Bayhem and it would do better to just be that, but it keeps trying to shoehorn in all of these, the the plot, the the dying freedom thing, you know, and the message of the film ends up just becoming so perplexing, so yeah. ridiculous. And, and then also well, it, somehow troubling in some ways, like it's troubling in many ways. <laughs> yeah, this is a coup d'etat. Yeah, exactly. They They're so cavalier about regime change. And we saw how that went in right. South America yeah. by the CIA. Uh -huh. And no, they, I do not trust these seven people to pick it, the exactly. correct it, it really is. succession leader. They bring it on themselves, exactly. these questions of like, oh, like America can't handle this. The other nations of the earth and blah, 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 because everybody's corrupt and these evil people and these dictators trying to control everything. But we, us six or seven people, we're going to make these changes. <laughs> yeah, just to go into this country and just decide who's going to rule this country now. They're just going to pull it off. And that whole speech about supposed to be heartwarming speech of... You ever wonder what it would be like if you could do the job that you were put on this earth to do? Hmm? You could take out some truly evil people. Not people that the government tells you are evil because based on, um, you know, policies or politics and bureaucracy or trade relations or any of that shit. No, I'm talking truly world-class evil motherfuckers. I can help you go after those guys. And I will never tell you to not pull that trigger. What would you say to that? I'm the guy who would have let you pull the trigger. I will never tell you not to pull that trigger. <laughs> You're never going to hear any restraint from me. If you want to kill them, I'm the guy that's going to let you kill them. And that's supposed to be one of the slightly poignant moments of the film. And I mean, what a message. <sighs> yeah, it's like as you watch that scene, you're like, gee, I wonder what Bay and the writers think about <laughs> about war crimes and yeah. if they're a thing. But speaking of that, did did any of you it's... look into the the setting for this movie, the country where the uh, with where the dictator Tur Turgistan? is? Turkestan. Yeah, Turkestan. So it's made up, isn't it? It is made up. But I was looking at it because I when I was mm -hmm. going through to try and do my synopsis, I was uh, the spelling, not that it matters, and. Uh, I see on Wikipedia, there's a link to it. So I click on it and it's like a region in India somewhere. And I'm like, wait, that doesn't make sense. And so I look and yeah, it is a made up country, just happens to share the same name as the region of India. So there's a coincidence for you. Jeez. But 
I was so grief. Con- it's based on Turkmenistan to the point that when I was watching the film, I thought it was Turkmenistan. That's what I thought I was seeing. And reading this this article, and in the article they say that. It's it it happened. This article came out before the movie, and they were saying Michael Bay is making a movie based on events in Turkmenistan. So that's how it was being talked about. And I look it up, and yeah, the Turkmenistan. The, the article says Turkmenistan and its authoritarian leader, and he has a wonderful twenty six letters in his name. I think it's Gurban Guli Bernie Mohamedov. Seem to have inspired the production of a big budget action movie. State symbols of the fictional Turkestan bear a striking resemblance to those of Turkmenistan. While residents of Turkestan seem to speak. Turkmen, and also bear Turkmen names. There are even more similarities between the fictional Turkmenistan and and Bernie Mohamedov's Turkmenistan. Both are represented by unpopular dictators. And in fact, in Turkestan, the leader's first name, uh, what was it, Rovak? That was the the villain in the movie, Rovak. Rovak, yeah. Which is the name of Bernie Mohamedov's favorite horse, which is an odd thing to pull from, but that's apparently where they got the name for the villain. (laughs) And then I went on this uh, amazing rabbit hole and found out that the dictator of Turkmenistan has a song about Rovak, his horse, that he released, where he's jamming out with his his grandson. And we'll have to, maybe we'll splice this into the episode for everybody. Uh, Or if not, you should go check it out. Because it's it's a tangent, but yeah, the guy, the horse for whom the bad guy in this movie is named after has a song dedicated to him, which is sung by a dictator and his grandson as they're at keyboards wearing sunglasses, trying to trying to rock out <laughs> in a place that that doesn't allow outside media or internet connections, which I guess is fair enough because how else are you going to get them to watch your hot new single? <laughs> and uh, and that grandfather and grandson, grandson still have a deeper knowledge and appreciation of geopolitics <laughs> than Michael Bay does. Right. And, well, and I was wholly ignorant of that. I just assume it was basically Syria and right. Cuba just sort of yeah. mishmashed mm-hmm. together. But there's a long tradition in American action movies like this. Bruckheimer... You know, you go back to that stuff. It's the same thing. We only get distorted surface representations yeah. of these things yeah. over and over. Sure. Yeah. But that's not what we come to these for. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. It, it reminded me a bit of... Uh... I guess, Dad. <laughs> Fine. It reminded me a bit of Team America World Police and the country that they are trying to invade is Durka Durkistan. And all of the bad guys right. just and say Durka Durka. talk about a movie that works. <laughs> yeah. See, that's the self-awareness you need for any of this to be palatable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that was probably the most exhausting two hours that I've had. And in, in, a, in a year full of exhausting hours, that was probably... <laughs> This was a low point. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it's, I, again, I've said it before, I like watching movies that challenge me, even if they're challenging my very sensibilities of what makes a good movie. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I would recommend this to anyone, <laughs> personally. Maybe if they just want to feel like the worst possible version of their 15-year-old self again. It might be a good little trip down memory lane. I don't know. Bay movie, they're so, um, it's so yeah. primal. I guess that's what, what what the draw is. It's spectacle and some kind of... For spectacle's sake, really. I don't know. Some kind of brute, yeah. maybe male 
mentality. But even even calling it even calling it spectacle feels disingenuous to me because spectacle, I think of the Spielberg face, you know, of like gazing into the abyss and seeing wonders. This is like spectacle. I, 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 wouldn't, I mean, I there's something even... it's Bay keeps keeps doing the same things over and over again. And yet there's something kind of it, it's almost a genuine compliment in a way to say, like, I don't know who else can do this sort of thing as as excessive as it is and as ridiculous, like this level of complexity to his action sequences, I think it totally pulls out the emotional stakes. I think it makes for an exhausting experience. I think it's too long. But there's some of it that I watch and I think, wow, I mean, the people that are making this are at the top of their craft. I definitely see what you're saying. There's an auteur stamp on this for sure. It's similar to, you know, it's apples and oranges, but the way you look at a John Waters film and say, oh, no one else mm-hmm. would have made that thing. <laughs> it's very much that. Yeah, I see that. And like I was saying, I don't want to completely run the thing down because there are things that I appreciated about yeah. it on those sorts of levels. But I would only recommend it, I guess, basically in terms of film education after you've seen all the other things that it's stealing yeah. from. <laughs> you watch those better films, and then, yeah, absolutely, watch this and see how someone cherry-picks this and that and makes this mishmash of things. How does it work? It's really a compelling question. Yeah. Why do so many people watch mm-hmm. these movies? It obviously does something right. Yeah. Maybe just not right for you. Yeah, definitely. That, that's a, that is a very valid point. I think it's it's a good window into a side of humanity that I don't often think about. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say I'm sheltered, but I'm definitely a little bit choosy about – well, I say I'm choosy. Bo knows the Netflix trash I watch. I, I'll watch anything. I'll watch literally anything, so I shouldn't say I'm choosy. That's that, that's the disingenuous thing. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a side of – humanity that i i don't think about as often as i should probably i mean it could, because it is a reality and there uh, there there are a lot of people who find it very fun well um i think as we're kind of nearing what i would imagine is maybe the twilight of this uh, of this film's discussion <laughs> yeah. uh, we should we should we should probably get into our 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 brand new segment titled who did it better so we like to think, you know, that 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 there can be a winner uh, in every category you can think of. Everybody gets a gold star at some point. So what's let's see. I'll I'll ask you first, Cole. What what is something that you think should should we should we go first? Should we lean on on Judex a bit? What's something that Judex nailed better than Six Underground? What what did, what did they what where did, where did they win? It just has miles of style. Basically, there's that mm. moodiness to it that I feel like lays over the whole thing like a shadowy cloak the way it ought to. Mm. That atmosphere that it creates from beginning to end, it maintains that consistent tone, unlike this, where from, you know, the whole thing, even though you have these whiplash-inducing cliffhanger moments mm-hmm. every at the end of every scene, basically, <laughs> nothing ever feels as outlandish as the happenings are. Nothing ever feels like it doesn't fit in the overall universe of Judex. That's what, that's how it feels to me. Anyway. Uh, what, what about you, Erica? What, what's something that you think, the, what's something where you think Judex would, would, would win in a fight against Six Underground? I think, head-to-head, Judex gets getting revenge right. Mm. It feels true somehow, hard-earned, 
weird, creepy, angry, <laughs> but also redemptive, depending on who you are, mm-hmm. in a way that Six Underground can't crack. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a, there, it's funny, actually, to look at the contrast between those where, on one hand, the these six people hold a grudge against a dictator that they're willing to destabilize an entire country to see it fit, to see it happen. And in Judex, he doesn't even necessarily want to kill the guy. He, he, he does everything except kill the guy for all intents and purposes essentially kills him but you know in a way that shows a, an astonishing level of of consideration on on Judex's part I think for his daughter especially but uh Bo, what do you what do you what do you, what do you, what do you think well mine Judex is got? actually could maybe going to turn it over to kind of a vote because maybe it's maybe it's neck and neck I don't know what I'm wondering is which one <laughs> which one has the best rooftop fight scene which one has the best climbing and rooftop mm. fight scene on the one hand mm. you oh, get wait. Yeah. yeah yeah it is a debate you get the skywalker guy jumping around you get those you know, vertigo inducing GoPro style shots as he's leaping from thing to thing. And I mean, I don't know why on earth <laughs> their elite heist team that's trying to overthrow a dictator needs a parkour guy, but you know, I'm glad he's there because it gives the movie some <laughs> of its best needs a stuff. Parkour yeah. Guy. Yeah. I'd even have a well, parkour sure. guy in my yeah. band. Yeah. <laughs> Fair heck enough. Yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah. That, that is actually what I wrote for Six Underground doing better is parkour. Okay. All right. As much as I love the parkour yeah. in Judex. Climbing up the walls, yeah. I I give the edge to Six Underground. <laughs> I actually, based on something that Bo said earlier, I have to vote for Judex because even right now, sitting here, the lack of music or the spare use of music, I can hear those two women, the ceiling tiles under their feet. When I imagine it in my mind's mm. eye, I'm immersed yeah. in that scene all over again. That's that's incorrect. <laughs> that's one thing I was thinking about because when they're climbing up, I keep thinking as much as I'm impressed, as much as I'm impressed by whatever, you know, I don't know who they're getting or how much of the how much of what we're seeing is real on uh, Six Underground with the parkour. I mean, I know there are parkour people that do some pretty insane things these days, but watching those guys climb up the side, it you do get the 1960s pre-computer idea of, oh, they're just climbing up that thing. You know, there they are. There's no ropes. You know, there's no, mm-hmm. there's, I doubt there's anything hidden. They're just, there they are climbing up. There they are on the roof. You know, some of it, you can tell there's some trick shots when she's hanging off at the edge and stuff. But a lot of that, you're going, oh, I guess they're doing it. And that kind of adds an edge to it. I think uh, one thing I would say that I thought, I'm torn on who did this bit better, but I'm, I'm inclined to say Judex as far as, um, telling me enough about the protagonist. <laughs> As I watched Judex, I was thinking, I feel like I would enjoy this more if I understood what Judex's deal was, where he got his money from, why he's doing all this. And then I saw Six Underground and I was thinking, you know, sometimes ignorance is bliss. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> sometimes I'm happier just not knowing the inner workings of this character. Would uh, Judex have been better for you if he told you that he was a ghost every 15 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that's the context that really would have driven it home. I think. No, that's that that's exactly it. For I, I, for a while, I thought Judex didn't talk enough, and then and then suddenly seeing how much Ryan Reynolds could talk, I was like, you know what? Silence is golden. So in a way, Six Underground wins for making me appreciate how much better Judex is. There's <laughs> wow. a little Mobius strip of logic for you. <laughs> but yeah, no, that was. This 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 made for one of the quirkiest and craziest pairings I think we've done on the, on on our podcast so far. There was a really really fun contrast with with enough similarities between the two that I was constantly thinking about each of them as I was 
as I was watching them. That's so I, I yeah. Thank you guys again for, for picking Judex that my, my absolute favorite part about this podcast is getting exposure to films that I've, I've never even heard of, let alone considered seeing. And Judex was one of them. I hadn't, I hadn't heard of it until you'd recommended it. And so it's, it's, it's a legitimate adventure for me to get to experience these. My second greatest pleasure with the podcast is making Bo watch movies that I know he's not going to enjoy very much. (laughs) (laughs) Mission accomplished. (laughs) Yeah. Woohoo. So this was a win-win all around. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us on on this on this special episode. We really really appreciate it. I I had a ton of fun talking movies with you guys. If you ever if you ever feel like comparing Criterion movies to streaming movies again and you get that 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 vibe before we desperately reach out to you again for, to to be on our show again, let us know cuz I I loved talking to you guys. Yeah, absolutely. This was super fun. Yeah, thank you. Had a great time with the discussion. <laughs> Not with one of those movie choices. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with one of the movies, we simply had a time. Uh, <laughs> time was had. It was a time. It was it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Yeah, and let's just let's just say again, yeah, that the that your podcast is the Magic Lantern. Yes. Uh, is there any your? Yeah, you're everywhere on Apple, Spotify, yep. Google, all that. Yeah. Yep, find us wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have any site or social media hub yeah. that you use? Uh, yeah, the website <laughs> is just uh, magiclanternpodcast.com. The Twitter handle is a little different. It's at lantern underscore cast. But on Facebook, on YouTube, mm. on Instagram, just look for Magic Lantern Podcast and you'll find us. Terrific. And w- when do your guys' episodes drop? When do you usually release new ones? Every other Monday. We've got one coming up soon that is Celine and Julie Go Boating. And then what's your next choice? My next choice is, is it Tony Erdemann? That's or right. I, okay, yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Super so excited about So we've got France and Germany awesome. coming up. Sweet. All right. Well, yeah. Ho- hopefully hopefully you get, you, get, you get the listeners you deserve for it because that's going to be a ton of fun. Well, thank you. We yeah. appreciate that, guys. All right. And we appreciate you. Thank you again so much. I, this is this is a notorious weakness of I'm going to say it's a weakness of the podcast even though it's my weakness I never know how to end an episode yet we haven't come up with a cool concise way yet usually we just fade out to me trying to say something clever while the music kicks in <laughs> so I may have music kicking right now as I'm trying to think of how I could possibly end it so 